You know, we get ready for certain things when something important is coming. Uh, March 11th, some of us know there's something coming. And you might find yourself at an Apple store or at your computer getting in line or ordering the next generation of that new device that's coming. I just touched somebody's iPhone 4G just a moment ago. Thought about just running off with it. There's certain things we'll stand in line for. I wouldn't stand in line for technology, but I might stand in line to see a musician that I like, a band, maybe hear someone speak. Um, something's coming, and we get in line for it. We get in line April 14th. Uh, April 14th, we get in long lines by the post office. Because if we don't, something's coming, right? I've never understood why people put that off, but... That's why Cindy does our taxes, but um, she gets it done on time. But I never have understood why people wait to the last minute to do their taxes. But then they get in this long line because they know if they don't, there's going to be retribution. You know, the presidents used to, uh, at random, uh, choose a family and they would come and have dinner at your home. Now, whether you voted for him or not, or voted for maybe her someday or not, can you envision getting a call from the White House protocol saying, President so-and-so would like to have dinner at your home, and here's the date. I suspect you'd get a few things ready. Destroy the house and build a new one. <laughs> well, we got a new carpet, new this, new that, new dining room. We've got to have this. We've got to you know, paint. We haven't painted in years. We'll have to paint everything. We'll have to completely redo. I mean, what if he uses the restroom? We'll have to remodel the bathroom. I mean, you know, you go through all these things. What would you do? If uh, a person, maybe not the president, maybe someone that you really admire, esteem, look up to, your hero, was going to come to your house, what would you do to get ready? Luke chapter 3, there's one coming, and he's so important and so significant in salvation history, he is the reason for history, that God sends from eternity past a plan Revealed a number of times through the book of Isaiah and then culminating in this passage today, a man called John the Baptist to do a job that only he could do that he was prepared for in God's mind from eternity past. Because one is coming and God wants this announced in many spectacular ways. Not only with angels appearing to uh, barren women and unmarried girls, an unmarried girl, but also for a prophet who will play a manifold role in the announcement of this coming. Luke chapter 3 is important for many reasons, and one reason, not the most important, is the archaeological and historical facts that we have in Luke chapter 3. Some people don't believe the Bible. They say, you know, the Bible's it's unreliable, there's no archaeology. Those are people that have never studied it, and Luke chapter 3 is a time stamp that historians cannot ignore unless they just ignore everything. Well, we have an empire of the King Herod the Great and many of his sons and nephews and the Herodian Empire and this, all that pay tribute to Caesar. And these facts are not disputed. And we have a timestamp in Luke chapter 3 that, give, uh, that gives us a historical piece and then I'm going to show you an archaeological piece that verify these things to be true. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, let me read first the first six verses. We'll look at it in four sections. Luke chapter 3. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Etraea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas, but in the Jordan area. And the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. In these first few verses, we have five political leaders and two religious leaders mentioned. Each of the leaders plays a huge role. We don't have time to look at. We know nothing of Lysanias other than his name. A tetrarch was a person that was over a quarter of something, a fourth of something. If you think of gerrymandering, the way we allocate a population and geography in a state or in a country and how we count votes, it's the same from antiquity. They were gerrymandered areas, and so certain parts were taxed when Caesar and Rome had exerted power over Jerusalem in the Jordan area. They would send the Herods, a line of Herods there to run things, and during the first century, Rome is in control. Uh, Caesarea is a tribute to Caesar. Caesarea Philippi, a tribute to Philip the Caesar. And so these titles of Herod and Caesar, about six key ones in the New Testament. We think of Herod Antipas. He's the one, uh, the son of Herod the Great. He lives from 4 B.C. to about 39 A.D., and he will be the one who will play the most prominent in the Christ story. Um, so we have these five political leaders. But when you read that sentence, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, we know that's A.D. 28 or 29, and nobody disputes it. Now, why is that important? We get a timestamp from a political realm uh, in the year 2010, when Barack Obama was president, this is, a, this is a fact historically, and nobody disputes it. This is one piece. The second piece is Pontius Pilate, as mentioned here. In 1961, some, uh, some archaeologists uncovered this stella, this stone, uh, carved in Latin, and it is the only record we have of Pilate's existence other than the narratives and the stories, but this is found in Caesarea the same area where all this is taking place. Uh, when uh, the folks go to Israel with me in a few weeks, we will see this very stone. The original one is in Jerusalem in, in a museum, but this is a facsimile they have made that's on the site where it was found. This gives us the first century evidence that Pilate was the, uh, the, the, the prefectus Judea. He was over Judea. And he was one of these uh, emperor leaders. He's more, uh, not quite a governor, a little bit more than a mayor. So we have these five political leaders, and then we have two religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas mentioned. Annas was the father of Caiaphas. Caiaphas will be, uh, when Jesus is arrested, they'll first take him to Annas. It's sort of like taking him to the older, uh, like the, the Daly dynasty or the Kennedy dynasty. You go to the older one first. And then you work down your line to the little one. So they would give a bow to the older Annas, and then they will take him to Caiaphas, where Jesus will spend his last night in Caiaphas' basement 
before he's crucified the following day. So the scene is set in chapter 3 of two timestamps, the, the legitimacy of Pilate being a real figure historically, no one disputing the fact that uh, Herod uh, lived at that time and Tiberius. All these timestamps give us good historical and archaeological information that confirms what the scripture has argued from all along. Now the word Lord comes to John, verse 2. This, uh, for, for the Jewish ear, it's so hard for us being so far removed from the Bible and the story and understanding the first century. And that's really Lloyd and Bill and my job, our jobs, as to help you go back in your brain sometimes because you have to get a picture of this stuff. But when they would hear the word of the God came, their brains would go back to, that sounds just like what happened with Hosea and Joel and Jeremiah and Amos. It's a prophetic call. And there are lots of ways the word of the Lord came to a person. We won't have time to look at those, but for example, he could have a vision. He could see God in a dream or a vision. He might have an appearance of Jesus Christ show up on the scene. We call him Christophanes in the Old Testament, where Jesus pre-incarnate talks to people. He shows up and he wrestles with Joshua, for example. So we know these, the word of the God, God comes to them. And if we pick up the storyline back in chapter 1, verse 80, you'll see John, the little boy, was a child who continued to grow and become strong and lived in the deserts, plural, until the day of his public appearance. And that's the day we're reading about now. So John, for 27, 28 years of his life, has been off the radar. Haven't heard a word from him, and now the word of God comes to John. There's three primary sections we're going to look at today, and then a brief one at the end. But the first six are the fulfillment of the promise of God. The verses I just read are given. John the Baptist is going to speak this as his message. And he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll look at that in a moment. John's message is to a Jewish audience. And John's message is this. Repent and be baptized because one is coming who's greater than I am. That's John's message to the first century Jew. Repent. Be baptized and repent. Baptism for repentance. We'll look at that in a moment. Because one is coming. And the one who's coming is greater than I am. John serves as a bridge. He is the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. In a sense, he's the last first New Testament prophet. Because after him, there'll be a prophet priest king named Jesus. So he forms this bridge between the corpus of all of Judaism as the one who comes out of the wilderness. The imagery is rich. Egypt comes out of Egypt, out of the wilderness. He called his son. Israel is in captivity. Out of the wilderness, I'm bringing my son. Jesus comes up like a tender shoot. All these metaphors are colliding in this one person, John. And he's going to come and give a message of repentance. Now, he preaches a baptism of repentance, and it's very important to understand John's baptism is unique. No one can be baptized the way John baptized at his day because we weren't first century Jews. He's talking about people living in the Jerusalem, Judea, Jordan, and that valley. He comes from the north part of the Dead Sea. There's the Galilean wilderness, Judean wildernesses, the Jordan areas of the valley. And he wandered around there all of his life until this day. And he shows up preaching repentance. Now, repentance is a big word. It's often taught as changing your mind. And that's one of many meanings. In this context, repentance means 
change the way you were living as a Jew to a concretely different way of living because one is coming who is greater than I am. Or to say another way, Jew, live like a good Jew because your king's coming. This is the most important visitation you're ever going to see in your lifetime, my Jewish brothers and sisters. So get your house in order because the president's going to have dinner with you tonight. Get your house in order because your king is coming. And the way you do that is to come out and repent. And we'll look at what that means. Now repentance in Acts chapter 5 verse 31 and in Acts chapter 11 verse 18 is a gift of God. It's very interesting. I believe salvation, I believe faith is a gift of God. God gives us the faith to believe in him. Repentance is just the same in Acts chapter 5 31, Acts eleven eighteen, God gives the Gentile the gift of repenting. In other words, repenting isn't just saying, I think I'll change and be a better person. So John's repentance is different than what we would call a New Testament repentance. But the idea is still the same, that we're turning from doing one thing to changing our mind, our attitude, but here concretely changing something very specific that can be seen because this one who's greater than I am is coming. Now he's a forerunner and he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 40. All the gospels use this quotation about John's role. He's the one crying in the wilderness. If you sang uh, Handel's Messiah, maybe as a, a kid in a choir or as an adult or a junior choir, or you've heard the Messiah sung or have a recording of it, uh, this is one of the famous passages Handel wrote. And he talks about the rough places, plain, uh, plain, every valley lifted up, every mountain made low. And the imagery is a geographical imagery of a spiritual problem. So uh, if you think of a high mountain being a picture of pride, it needs to be made low. The depravity and uh, darkness of sin needs to be brought to light. The crooked means perverse. The crooked, perverse road of sin needs to be straightened out because your king is coming. In 2000, uh, Pope John Paul II visited uh, Israel. And if you've not been over there, the Catholics got there early and they put churches all over the countryside. And there's a church called the Primacy of Peter. And this is the church... Uh, built where they think the approximate site of where Peter is restored. Remember, he denies Jesus three times, and then he's restored Jesus. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? love me? And Peter gets a little upset about that. Remember that? That's called the primacy of Peter. So that geographic area, there's a church built there. And uh, if you were to visit there pre-2000, you parked and walked down basically a trail with grass and weeds, depending on what time of year it was. Well, the Pope was going to go there, so uh, the Israeli... Uh, tourism uh, department and the Catholics over there decided we better make a nice road. So they built a beautiful parking lot and put it in a beautiful concrete uh, uh, stone curb thing that you walk. And now it's a nice level road instead of walking sort of in the Galilee and around the Sea of Galilee, uh, sort of a muddy, dirty trail like a lot of it is. Uh, you actually walk on a nice piece of pavement. It's really kind of nice. They got it ready for the Pope. They cleaned it up. Geographically illustrates spiritually what the Jew needed to do. You need to get your spiritual house in order because one who is greater than I is coming. Verse 6, all flesh will see the salvation of God. This, this verse, um, and if you haven't figured me out by now, you never will, but I'm a very weird person. Just ask Cindy. I'm a very weird person, and even after 30 years of marriage, she is astonished how weird I am sometimes. 
But when I read that verse, the hair on the back of my neck sticks up. Because this verse does, it's not like Simeon in chapter 2, verse 30. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. This is Isaiah saying, there's one going to come out of the wilderness and all flesh will see Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You see, when you're made in the image of God, you're going to live forever. Some of you know the doctrine of annihilation. People are more and more people teaching that there's no hell. It's a figurative thing in the Bible. It's not literal. That hell's a, a bad place, but in the end, it's, it's all dissolved and it's annihilation. A lot of evangelicals have gone to this. That is heresy. And it's heresy for 50 reasons, but because you're made in the image of God, you cannot be destroyed. Your soul is eternal. The reason you are resurrected is because this body cannot live forever. You need a new one to be able to endure eternity. I am ready for a new vertebrae. Let me tell you, I'd love my resurrected spine now, please, Jesus. Some of you would love some, you know, part of you, the resurrected part. We don't get that until after we're dead and resurrected. Because you have to have an eternal body to withstand eternality. Everyone is resurrected. Everyone, whether they know Christ or not, is resurrected. Everyone, whether they know Christ or not, has an eternal body. Because one has to withstand eternality with Christ, and one has to withstand eternal punishment, eternal torment, eternal wrath because of their sin. And that creeps me out. Because you are an eternal being. And God knows you perfectly and intimately. And he does not brush sin under a rug. It was for sin he died. It was for sin he came to rectify the spiritual incurable cancer we all possess. He is not going to just ignore it at the end. God's love is a two-sided coin. It's wrath on one side. It's love on the other. And he took the wrath of God in order to love you and me. Do not minimize the reality of hell. All will see his salvation. The warning then is explained in verses 7 and following. Luke chapter 3 verse 7. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. It's not, not Del Carnegie, is it? You snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, plural. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, What then shall we do? Let's take it the first part to begin with. Now, in this warning, this preaching, the baptism of repentance, he is telling them, you need to turn from the way you're living, which is not the way you're supposed to be as a good Jew, and there needs to be a concrete change in the way you live, because one who is greater, your king, is coming, and all flesh are going to see them. Now, John's baptism is unique because it's for repentance. John is going to baptize Jesus in the same text. 
The other, uh, Matthew and Mark record the baptism of Jesus. Luke does not. He's going to baptize Jesus. Is, is Jesus coming out to repent? John doesn't want to baptize him. We'll see in a minute. He's unworthy to touch him. And he says, no, permitted at this time. Because John's baptism was only for the Jew and only for his or her repentance. Now, the Jew, what John is saying here is, would think, well, you know, I have Abraham as my father. If I, if I get baptized in that water there, I'm, I'm in good shape because I'm, I'm, we'd say I'm an American. Of course I have my freedoms and my rights and, you know, I can keep my gun. I'm an American. You can't take it away from me. I'm American. And the Jew would say, I'm of Abraham. Don't you get it, John? Don't cling to Abraham as your father, as your way to heaven. That doesn't get it. That's not enough. From these stones. Now, he's not saying he's going to turn the stones into people. It's a reference, I think, to creation. From these stones, Abraham could have more children. Meaning, when God made Adam, he made him from dirt. God can do what he wants. He can raise up a new generation. He doesn't need you to say you're of Abraham. And for the first century Jew, this would be a chilling message. They're depending wrongly for the wrong things for salvation. It's a stern warning. Now, the language brood of vipers is, is going to be the most politically uncorrect thing he could have said. Jesus will use the same in John chapter 8, verse 44. In the Old Testament, the enemies of God were vipers. Uh, Jesus will say in 8:44, your father is the devil. The picture of a viper is that of, of Satan. And the wrath of God to come is when the fire comes in, in the woods, all the animals run, right? Because they get the heat, they smell it, they have senses, who knows. But they all run when the fire comes. And if you have a bunch of rattlesnakes and you set the mesquite on fire in, in West Texas, the rattlesnakes come out of their holes because they're fleeing the wrath that is to come. He goes, you're a bunch of snakes. You're the son of the devil. And you heard about this wrath and you're coming out. You think you're Abraham's offspring? You're just snakes. You're apart from God because you're not living the way a Jew would live. Now, John's audience is going to hear this, and we're going to see their response to it. It's quite astonishing how they respond. They respond well, most of them. The record tells us they respond well. The first part of verse 8 is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we're going to see repentance is a concrete action. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's baptism is different. His repentance is different. We have to be careful how we apply this. Stay with me. John's baptism is repent. You're not living as a good Jew. Be baptized to repent because your king is coming. Okay, you with me on that? I've said it 50 times. You got it? Because our repentance is different than the repentance that John is preaching about. Now, each of these is facing judgment. In verse 9, the axe is laid. This isn't a pruning like in John 15. This is cutting the tree down and further burning it in the fire. This is wrath and destruction awaits those who are not rightly aligned. Now in, chapter, in verses 10 to 14, we have three different responses from the crowd. Let's go back to there. The crowds were questioning him, saying, what then shall we do? That's a good question. They get John's message that he's got their attention. What do we do? And we have three broad stroke pictures of individual examples to paint a picture of the law. What do we do based on this, John? Verse 11, and he would answer them and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized 
And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Soldiers were questioning him, saying, And us, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Each of these is an individual story, but it explains a big piece of the law. Very simple. Uh, in the first century, men wore a, a, like a long undershirt. That was their undergarment. And then they wore tunics over it. And poor people would only basically run around in their underwear, like a long T-shirt. That's all they had. And he's, you know, if you've got two or three tunics at home, and you see a guy running around in his, in his long johns, give him a coat. I've got 12 very expensive wool suits in my closet that I look at every day. And I go, what do I do with all these wool suits? If I wear them to church, they laugh at me. <laughs> I pay a lot of money for them. They're all tailored and, and altered and cuffed in their beautiful wool suits. But I don't know who to give them to because I don't know anybody who wears suits. So if you need a suit, let me know. I got something to pick from. I don't need those suits. I need a couple of things to marry and bury. Not the, not the DC guy, marry and bury, but to marry people and bury people. You got to have a couple of suits for that. But you don't need 12. If you have a lot of food in your home and you see a guy in the trash piles, give him some food. What's the basic of the part of the law here? If you have something and you can meet a need, go meet it. Second is the tax collector. This one's interesting. Tax collectors are always looked down upon. They're like, you know, IRS agents. Everybody hates them, right? The tax collector was empowered by Rome, by Caesar, to go and collect taxes from the landowners, the individual homeowners, the businesses, the farmer. Now, if you're a tax collector and you're empowered by the government, and let's say he can take 10% tax from you, you have to pay it. If you're a tax collector, are you going to go try and visit 30 dirt poor farmers or the people who own the land? You know, it's just the same as today. This is nothing new, guys. Let's build the rich. Because they have more money, and it's a lot easier to get one wealthy person to pony up money than 50 or 60 poor people to pony up money, and they don't have much to give anyway. So let's build the rich. This is nothing new. It's antiquity. The problem was not in them collecting taxes. The problem was in the usury or the surplus or the excess they took to put in their pocket. And how would it play out, just like today? Tell you what. You give me 12% instead of 10%, I won't go tax your farmers. I'll leave your farmers alone. It's the same thing we're arguing about today. Nothing's new under the sun, guys. So in the political system of that day, the tax collector was loathed because he was not honest. Everybody give 10%, be done with it. And John's saying, if you're a tax collector, only take what you're supposed to take. Take your part, your commission, but that's all you take. And then we have the soldiers. Now, the soldiers could be either Herod Antipas troops. I think they were the Judean police. They might be tax police. You think, just like today, if a person is uh, behind on their mortgage, they won't leave their house, that they send a sheriff with uh, the banker, let's say, that goes and knocks on the door and, and pulls you out of your house. Same in antiquity. So the police would go along with the tax collector and say, you haven't paid your taxes for four years, whatever it is. You're out. We have control of your house. We're going to, by force, take you away. Now, the information to the tax police or these uh, soldiers is interesting. He says, don't financially harass people. Secondly, don't accuse them falsely. And this word in Greek is a fun word. It's the word we get in English, shakedown. 
a shakedown. Think of the Chicago mobs in Al Capone's day. If you don't give us money, we're going to come shake you down. We're going to burn down your business and we're going to kill your wife and children. That's a shakedown. So you better give us money. You don't shake them down. And thirdly, interestingly, be content with your wages. Now, the bigger picture here is Jews are coming out because they hear this crazy guy, John, preaching, repent because your king's coming. Be baptized to demonstrate a change because your king is coming. And they're responding. And they, what do we do? What do we do? What do you do? You follow the law. That's the summary. You're a Jewish people. Your Jewish Messiah is coming. You should turn and be baptized to demonstrate that a concrete change. And it looks like this. Take care of people in need. Uh, don't take more taxes than you should. And uh, if you're a person of authority, use that authority within the realm of its authority and don't abuse it. The coming one in verses 15 and following. The message strikes a chord. It strikes their hearts. It strikes their heads. And look how they respond. Now the people, verse 15, 15 were in a state of expectation. And they were wondering. Luke likes these words. Wondering, pondering things in their hearts. He likes these words. They were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. And John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you in water. The one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor. You hear the judgment language? He's going to clean it out. Uh, he will gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable. Never goes out. All the metaphors and explanations of hell are ongoing. Unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. The coming one is not him. They think this might be Jesus. He says, I'm not him, but the one who comes is mightier. I'm just baptizing you with water. As for me, I'm not fit to touch the guy's sandaled foot. But the one who comes will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now this phrase gives birth to a lot of information we don't have time to jump into. But let me simply say this. Churches have formed over a mode of baptism Name of Jesus only, baptism, forward baptism, backward baptism, Trinitarian baptism, immersion, pouring, dipping, you know, yada, 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 yada. In that church, right? We know this. It's the same with this phrase, the Holy Spirit and fire. Biblically, it can mean one of two things, I think. One, it's one action. When you trust Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. After the book of Acts and the book of Acts, a clear pattern. When a person trusts Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells. All of Paul's teaching is the same. When you trust Christ, you are immediately indwelt by God's Spirit. And what's the fire part mean? It can mean one of two things. At that time when the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells you, the fire could be the purification part. He's cleansing you. Remember Isaiah's lips are touched with a coal to cleanse his lips? The fire is a judgment and a cleansing. That could be one possibility. Some believe it's one action. I'm just putting a little water on you. This one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or it could be two separate actions, which many believe. If you want to look this up, jot down Malachi 3, verses 2 and 3, and Isaiah 4, verses 4 and 5. Malachi 3, 2 and 3, and Isaiah 4, 4 and 5. Those verses would argue that the Holy Spirit has come, but there's a future judgment of fire, and that would be the Holy Spirit's role 
in the eschaton at the end of time when Jesus returns. So either one is a, has, has good valid biblical legs, but the fire gives us an image of all kinds of things and churches are birthed out of these uh, phrases and we need to be careful with a consistent biblical theology. Well, basically Christ is going to come with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm just putting some water on you. My baptism is only for a very short time. He's now in prison, verses 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But, in contrast, he exhorted the people, but, verse 19, when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, he reprimands the king. This is not a good thing to do, by the way. Uh, Because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So because of John's polemic, he's political. The book, op- the, the section in chapter 3 opened with the political leaders and it ends with the political leaders. Very important to note this. God's salvation history is going on even though these would-be kings like Pilate and Herod and Philip have a role. God's still sovereign. Even though people are going crazy in Egypt and in the Middle East and in Wisconsin and next to Ohio, even though things are crazy, God's still sovereign. God's salvation history is not bothered by man's sin. God's salvation history is not worried because of man's bad political decisions. Politicians were corrupt in the first century. There were good ones in the first century. There's good ones today and there's corrupt ones today. Just like there's good and corrupt people in every profession and every walk of life. Because we're sinners to the core. Now, when John comes and, and is, we have these timestamps, we know from verse 2, Caesarea Philippi, we know the timestamp, 29, 28, 29, that time period. We know John, when he was conceived, we do the math, he's maybe not quite 30 when he comes on the scene. Herod is going to throw him in prison. Uh, what he's done here, he's divorced his wife, his brother, uh, Herodias divorced his brother, who was her husband, they got married. There was like 80 things wrong with that I won't bore you with, but they weren't supposed to do it, and he reprimands them, and Herod throws them in jail. Josephus believes it was a political way of quietening the noise of his kingdom, which makes pretty good sense. Then the word of the Lord came to John, chapter 3, verse 2. One year, he's outside preaching. Two years, he's in prison, and then he's beheaded. And Jesus said, there's nobody greater than John. Boy, our life looks different, doesn't it? Why is John isolated out in such a way? From eternity past, God had a plan for this man. Jesus nobody greater than John. Why? Because John got it. John was chosen. John did what he was supposed to do. John's going to be in prison for a while. We'll see in the Gospels where he will wonder if this is really the right one. That's a sermon for another time. But all this is to prepare for one who's coming. Now let's make an application that's a big bridge. It's a big step. Stay with me. This was to the Jew in the first century who was going to get ready because the Jewish Messiah was coming. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 
there is a form of repentance. Not John's, but there is a form of repentance that frankly we're very poor at. I can feel the neuroscience already going on in the room because we're all sinners who toy and coddle certain sins. It's like catnip. We do it for a while. We go crazy with it. It makes us guilty. We go and ask for forgiveness. We fight it off for a little while. And then we get back into catnip. Not a person in the room doesn't have a form of catnip. Repentance is not just a mindset change. It's a gift of God, just like Lloyd so well always preaches. You can't do anything in the flesh. It's the Holy Spirit's power that changes and transforms us. The flesh fails always. Cooperating with God's word and God's spirit and the sharpening of God's people, we can change. Your intimacy with Christ is your best preventative to sin. Mark it on a map. The closer you are with Christ, the less sins affections have on you. The further you are away in your time in the Word, your time in prayer, your time with other believers, the further you are away from that, the more you're into sin. It's an algorithmic fact. The closer you walk with Christ, the shorter account you and I keep of our sins. Right? We all know this. What is repentance for the believer? It's a lot of things, but simply it's this. And I'm going to give you this, your so what. You, you, right now, there is a sin you need to repent of before God. And you need to ask Him. And I'm not talking about this victory over sin and sinless perfection nonsense. I'm talking about a characteristic issue you struggle with. That if you did it 30 times a month, what if you only did it 3 times a month? Is that progress? I think so. Is it perfection? No. We'll never be perfect. We'll always struggle with sin. But the closer you stand to the light, the more imperfection you see. The further the way you are, you don't see it. And you get callous to it. There's not a person in this room, God's not using his word and his spirit to talk to you right now to say, you need to repent of X. And now what I want to see from you, God saying to you and me, I want you to repent of that and turn away from it. Instead of the emotions and affections of this thing, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, money, sex, and power, the three umbrellas. Instead of the affections of that, turn those affections toward me. Because I'm the only one who can satisfy those longings anyway. This is catnip, and it will never really do anything except make you sick after a while. Life's over here. Take a minute. Between you and your king. Because he's coming someday. Someday.